Okay, well, you've, you've got to start somewhere. You know, the, the conference has very much got a theme this year, putting our own house in order, only putting our own house churches in order. So you've got to start somewhere. Um, you have Monopoly over here, do you? Do you play Monopoly? Oh, you do something normal then. Yeah, I mean, you know, Monopoly, you, you, you start from go. And, and you have to start from, from, from somewhere. Um, incidentally, some years ago, although I never pursued having it patented, I actually invented Theopoly. And, you know, it's really good because you, 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 you start on the born-again square, okay? And every, every time you go around it, you get filled with the spirit again. And when... <laughs> see. And when you land on various places, you, you build churches. And when you get a set of three, then you, you, you start to, to plant out house churches. But when you get five on each square, you put a mega church on. You see, it's, it's, it's real cool. There's, um, there's no, you know, kind of go to jail. It's go directly to Hades. Do, do not meet a Christian. Do not get saved. There aren't, of course, any chance cards. They're predestination cards, and they're real cool. <laughs> okay, yeah. We've got to start. Even, even God had to start somewhere. That's why there's Genesis 1 verse 1. That's why it's there. And so where we are going to start tonight is that this, this conference, the, the push behind it is it's what churches ought to be like. That's, that's really what this conference... You can have Christian conferences about many, many totally valid and important aspects of biblical teaching. This conference is about what churches ought to be like. And outside of, you know, kind of knowing the Lord and following him, all the speakers, what we all have in common is that we are all individually part of churches that are very, very alike. They're a particular type of church. We're not all doing it because we know each other. We, we've just been doing it for years and we found each other, okay? But, but that is what holds us together above. As I say, we all follow the Lord, but also it's this we're all part of a particular type of, of, of church. And fundamentally, you know, kind of like, you know, the way that I tend to put it, I've got what I call irreducible minimum for a biblical church. And, you know, sort of like, you know, they're there are four things. When you look at the early church, you find, you know, sort of firstly, that they didn't have hierarchical leadership. There was no hierarchy. No one was in charge. You know, the, each church governed itself under the authority of the teaching of the apostles or scriptures. And any leadership that there was were just locally raised up men, known by the brothers and sisters, proven men, just one of the guys. Okay. So there's leadership, but it's not hierarchical. And that's, that, that, that's real important. We see that loud and clear in scripture. Secondly, we see churches meeting in houses. Uh, you know, every time scripture locates a church, it's in somebody's house. Now, the important thing about that is just that meeting in houses, because they kept each church small, they didn't need anything other than a church. Uh, uh, sorry, other than a house. And the reason for that was what they did when they came together. And these are the other, you know, two things about uh, what a of biblical churches. Firstly, they would just hang out together and they would share in a completely participatory time of worship and teaching and, and singing and prayer and praise. Uh, you know, e each person was, was free to take part. I, they didn't have services. So that's, that's small. You, you want a small group doing that. And they would have the Lord's Supper as a full meal. And what it boils down to 
in the New Testament, a church was an extended family of God. It was a group of people who realized that God was their father and they would be brought together and they would just be together and hang out together and just spend family, family time together. And that's what a church is, the family of God. But where we're going to be going tonight isn't so much what we do in order to be a biblical church. The rest of the conference and all the other talks in that we will all be contributing different aspects of of what you do in order to be a biblical church. So the other, the other teaching sessions are going to unpack that. What I'm going to be looking at tonight isn't so much what we do, we're homing in on this talk, and I think this is the foundational talk for this conference. This, you know, like start at go, you know, this is where we've got to start, is that I'm going to be talking about why we do it. Not what we do, but why we do what we do. And let me answer the question, okay, why am I part of a church that is as I have just described? Why is it that I am part of a church like that? And I'm going to give you the definitive answer, and this is what this talk is all about, and this is what all of us are all about. Why am I part of a church that functions the way I've described? And the answer is this. I am part of the church I am part of because that is what the Bible teaches. And I want you to know that's the only reason that I am part of a church that is such as I have described. It's because it's what Scripture teaches. It's because it is what churches were like as revealed in Scripture when the apostles of Jesus were the people who were saying, this is how you do church. So fundamentally, there's only one reason that we're doing what we're doing. It's because it's what we see in Scripture. But let me emphasize as well, that understanding is not just to do with church. That understanding is what should motivate a Christian in regards to anything. The ultimate valid reason for doing anything a particular way is what Scripture teaches. There's actually no good reason to do anything else, anything at all, except what Scripture teaches. Give an example. I mean, for instance, why did I marry Belinda? I mean, did I marry Belinda because I fell in love with her and because I wanted to spend the rest of my life with her? No, that's not why I married her. I mean, yeah, I did fall in love with her. I do want to spend the rest of my life with her. But we could do that without getting married. Who needs to get married? So why did we get married? It's because that is what Scripture teaches. Okay. Um, why did we become parents after we got married? Could have done it the other way around, couldn't we? It's because of what Scripture teaches. So if I address myself with the question, well, look, why don't I lie? Why don't I cheat? Why don't I steal? You know, why don't I worship idols? Why don't I practice occultism anymore? Because I used to. Why don't I anymore? Because of what the Bible teaches. Now look, I know Jesus. In 1971, Jesus revealed himself to me, and I got to know him. Now, I think that I love him. I certainly want to love him. But how can I know if I love him? 
I mean, it's no use looking at feelings. I mean, my feelings go up, my feelings go down, for heaven's sake. I mean, feelings are not going to help me in that department. Now, if you go with me to John's Gospel, and I just want to read some things that Jesus said that, for me, answers that question. I think I love Jesus. I want to love Jesus. How can I know? And, and in, in, in John's Gospel, and in John 14 and verse 15, he said this. This is Jesus speaking. He said, if you love me, you will obey what I command. If you go down to verse 23, again, this is Jesus speaking. He says, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. But then that raises the question, okay, so how do we know what the Lord's teaching, what the Lord's commands actually are? How, how are we to know that? And of course the answer is obvious. This is so obvious, but we need to underline it. We know what Jesus is teaching. We know what Jesus commands is and are through the word of God, through scripture. Um, back in John, uh, John 14, and now I'm going to read verse um, 16. And Jesus said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. Now, let's read verses 12 and 13. He says, um, sorry, go over to John 16, and in verses 12 and 13, Jesus says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. And then if you go to John, the next chapter, John 17, when Jesus is praying, and he was praying for everyone who was to believe on his name, what we're seeing is the spirit of truth, and the spirit of truth was going to reveal all truth, and of course he revealed it to the apostles. How do we know what the Holy Spirit revealed to the apostles? It's because we have the scriptures. It's because we have the New Testament. And in John 17, verse 17, Jesus says this, praying for us, he says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. The truth is the written word of God. So that's why I'm saying the only reason to do anything in a particular way has got to ultimately be related. Well, does scripture speak about whatever it is? Now, the other side of this equation that we also need to understand, look, our hearts are deceitful. We have a sinful nature. Our natural inclination is towards sinfulness. Now, the Lord has given us a new nature, but I don't know about you, but mine's still there. And if any of you wonder whether you haven't got one anymore, um, I'll ask your wife about it. She'll know. We have a sinful nature. Our hearts deceive us. And you know, it does not suit our rebellious hearts to go necessarily by what is true. So we have a natural tendency towards falsehood, towards that which isn't true. Now, also, I have an enemy. And Satan, above all else, is known as the great deceiver. He is a liar. And he and all the demon hordes who are subject to him, they work to keep people, believers too, away from the truth 
and in deception. And it's amazing to realize that when you read through the New Testament, there are various things the New Testament warns us about. It says, look, here is danger, danger area, danger area. Obviously, in, in the area of personal morality, danger area, flee fornication. In regards to many things, don't even get in a position where you can be tempted. Warning, 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 Will Robinson, warning, Will Robinson. You know, it's, you know, um, um, yeah. but also, what we've got to realize, there's one thing that we are warned about in Scripture more than anything else, more than any one single thing. I'll tell you what it is, wrong teaching. Deception, the doctrines of demons. Or to put it another way, anything that goes against the revealed written word of God. If the truth sets us free, which Jesus said it would, then error will put us in bondage. If it can be established beyond reasonable doubt that scripture teaches something whether it be to positively do something or negatively to not do it if it can be reasonably established that scripture so teaches then that is it that is the end of the story it is what the Lord requires of us no more and no less. We, amongst other things, we're, we're, we're Jesus' brothers, we're, we're the children of God, but we are the army of God as well. We're soldiers in the Lord's army. Scripture is our written orders. And the duty of any soldier is to obey his orders at all costs. Our requirement as believers is simply to obey the teaching of Scripture. And if we want to answer the question, hey, do I love Jesus? Yeah, there, you know, do I ever feel him? Do I have feelings of love and adoration towards him? Now, I'm not saying none of that matters, but none of that is decisive. Jesus himself, in effect, says, if you want to know if you love me, live according to my teaching. And of course... His teaching is simply the revealed will of God, the Scriptures. So if we're saying, well, okay, if the Bible teaches something, that's it, end of story, no more argument, ours simply to obey, we need to, to ask the question, well, okay, so does, does the New Testament actually teach a particular way um, to do church? You know, or, or is it left to, oh, it's up, up to us? Now, the rest of this conference is going to demonstrate to you very clearly that yes, Scripture does in fact teach and command certain ways to do church. And all the relevant, you know, sort of teaching in regards to this you will get in the rest of these plenary sessions and in the various workshop teachings that are going on. But I mean, you know, just very quickly in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 2, Paul when teaching specifically about what a church does when it comes together, says to the Corinthians, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for maintaining the traditions I passed on to you. That's practice. Paul says, well done. You're practicing just as I've taught you. 
And if you read Corinthians, you'll find out what it was that Paul had taught them. When the church comes together, it's open for all to take part, and they have the Lord's Supper as a full meal. And then when Paul ends his treatment of what a church does when it comes together on the Lord's Day, he sums it all up, and he says, look, if anyone thinks they're a prophet, if anyone thinks he's spiritually gifted, then let him realize that what I write to you is the command of the and what was the context that he wrote that in? He'd just been dealing with what churches do when a church comes together. And Paul makes it absolutely clear, yes, that it is the Lord's command. Um, one of the things that uh, I like to do is to kind of bring in the experts. Because if you, you, know, if you go to all the top Bible scholars and all the commentators and stuff like that, and if you, you know, sort of say, well, I wonder what their understanding... I mean, these guys are the experts. What's their understanding of, uh, you know, kind of, you know, how, how the early church met. I mean, you know, is, is this stuff, is this just a few of us strange guys? Is it just our opinion? And, uh, well, you know, I mean, you know, for instance, where can I, uh, where can I, yeah, Dr. Dr. John Drain is lecturer in practical theology at Aberdeen University. He's adjunct professor at New, of New Testament at Fuller Theological Seminary. And he's a visiting professor at Morling College in Sydney. And he writes lots of the lion handbooks of Christianity and stuff like that. Now then, listen to what he says um, in, in, in his book, Introducing the New Testament, which is published by Lion. He says, in the earliest days, the church's worship was spontaneous. This seems to have been regarded as the ideal. For when Paul describes how a church meeting should proceed, he depicts a spirit-led participation by many, if not all. There was the fact that anyone had the freedom to participate in such worship. In the ideal situation, when everyone was inspired by the Holy Spirit, this was the perfect expression of Christian freedom. Uh, Canon, Canon Leon Morris is pretty well known, and uh, he's the principal of Ridley College in Melbourne. He writes commentaries for InterVarsity Press, and uh, in, in his commentary on 1 Corinthians, uh, speaking of chapter 11, he says, chapter 11 reveals that at Corinth, the Holy Communion was not simply a token meal as with us, but an actual meal. Moreover, it seems clear that it was a meal to which each of the participants brought food. Now, you can, you can check out our church web, website, www.house-church.org, and we've got quote after quote after quote from all the top theologians, all the top commentators, simply acknowledging that what I gave you is that definition of a biblical church. There's no debate about that. That's what the early church was like. This isn't just our, our opinion or anything like that. And so the point is, yeah, Scripture does teach a particular way to do church. Now, if you go to 1 Corinthians and check out chapter 4, and uh, this is kind of important, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and uh, I'm going to read verse 1 and then verse 6. And he says, So then, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things. Who's he talking about? Himself and the other apostles. Entrusted with the secret things. What secret things? The whole truth that the Holy Spirit revealed to the apostles that got written down in Scripture. The apostles were the walking New Testament. So these secret things that Paul's talking about was what he and the other apostles were teaching the churches. It wasn't secret anymore. And then in verse 6, listen to what he says. Now, brothers, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, 
so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. And of course, the word scripture comes from the Greek word written. So in effect, what Paul is saying is, do not go beyond scripture. And that's the push of this verse. Paul is saying, we've revealed the secret things to you. It is our apostolic teaching. For us, it's there in Scripture. And Paul says, whatever we've taught you, do not go beyond it. Indeed, don't subtract from it. The very, you know, I mean, right at the end of the Bible, you know, so in the last few verses, it talks about anyone who adds to this book or takes away from the words of this book. You know, you can, you can you know, screw things up two ways. You can go further than Scripture or not far enough. And we've, we've got to, you know, sort of like understand it. But what I'm going to, the road we're going to go down now is that, okay, I'm saying that the only reason for doing church the way we're advocating is because we're doing it because that's what Scripture teaches. Okay. As far as we're concerned, that's the only reason for doing anything. But you can also end up doing house church or being involved in house church things for reasons other than the reason I have just stated. And if you do, you will end up with church experience that remains a long way from what Scripture teaches. Now, what do I mean by this? Those of you who know me well, well one of the things I'm always banging on about is that I, I prefer the term biblical church over house church. Now, I mean, I'm quite happy to talk about house church as long as I'm free to define what I mean by it. But I prefer the term biblical church. Now, why is this? Well, I'll tell you. A biblical church will meet in people's homes. So, yeah, it will be a house church. It will be a home church. But the converse is far from being true. You can have believers who meet as a church in homes and yet remain unbiblical in every other respect. For heaven's sake, there are churches, all right, that meet in homes and they, they lay the chairs out in rows, they put their suits on, and the pastor leads the service. They have a little ritual with bread and wine and then they go home and they'll see each other the next time that church meets. Can you see? The issue here is not house church. The issue here is biblically-based church. So what I've got to do is I want to cover, uh, I, I see as two, as two of the main wrong reasons why people end up doing house church. And what we're going to be looking at is what I'm going to call pragmatism and then mysticism. I'll define these, but I want you to hold in mind that these two things, although in one way they're different, they are actually two sides of the same coin. They're the same thing, but they manifest themselves slightly different. Slightly differently. Now let's look at pragmatism first. What, what is pragmatism? Pragmatism is doing something because it works. It's, it's doing something a particular way because you think that that way is the best way to get whatever particular results it is that you are after. So it's doing something for the reason, hey, I think that would work. I think that way of doing 
it is better than this way of doing it. So because that works better, I'm going to do it that way. I'm not going to do it this way anymore. Okay. And of course, when you hit up against this kind of thinking, the final authority is not the teaching of the Bible. The final authority is what works. What you're after is an end result. Now then, if you say to us, well, look, hey guys, what are you guys after? Well, my answer would be, I just want to do what the Bible says. Now, at any point, I could be wrong in my understanding about what the Bible says, but that, that's what I want to do because I believe that that is what Jesus wants for us, and therefore, if I'm to love him, that, that's the way I'm to love him. So, so, so that's, that's, that's what motivates us. But if you're a pragmatist, what motivates you is, well, what's going to work? What is going to deliver? And there are, there are lots of believers who are doing house church now, and they're, they're, they're kind of, they're doing it for these reasons of pragmatism. And normally, when you come up against this, you'll find that the pragmatic reasons behind their decisions to do house church is usually intensive and obsessive evangelism. Now, what I want you to understand is that different, different people have different gifts and ministries. But just because different people have different gifts and ministries doesn't necessarily mean that they are equally or as properly grounded in Scripture as they should be. Now, there are evangelists and apostolic types around who are just, they're just wonderful brothers. They are wonderful people and they love the Lord and they are serving the Lord with, with, with you know, the very best that they feel that they can give him. But the problem is, because they're solely wanting to see people converted, and because they are solely doing house church, because they think that's the best way to do it, then what's happening is that when they form these people together in churches, the push behind the existence of that church that has come into being is purely to evangelize and plant out other churches. So rather than having people come to know the Lord and you then put them in a, a, an extended family environment so they can grow in the Lord and come into maturity and stuff like that, rather what happens is the new converts end up clones of the evangelist or the church planter who has brought them to the Lord. Can you see that? so that a church comes into being, and these guys would say the primary reason for any church existing is to replicate. And so everything is, is a real pressure to get these new converts to become evangelists. And therefore, what happens is the church merely becomes an extension of the evangelistic gift of the church planter. In other words, when you get pragmatism, house church because of pragmatism, because of seeing it as a good model for intensive and seeker-friendly evangelism, as they say, what actually happens? You end up not so much actually with churches at all. You end up with groups of people who are functioning not as a church, but really as an evangelistic home cell group. Can you see the problem? 
and it isn't a church in the biblical sense of the word. Let me give you an example. I mean, you know, sort of like, you know, the church that we're part of back home in England. Now, they, they kind of, you know, acknowledge that the Lord has given me a kind of a teaching gift, and they're very happy for me to serve them with that gift. They're very happy to say, well, look, hey, go, go share yourself, you know, sort of, you know, there are, other, there are other silly people out there who might be happy to have you. So, you know, share yourself out. You know, go, go as widely as people want to uh, invite you. So they, they acknowledge that, okay, in that sense, I'm a teacher. But can you imagine if from the word go at the church back home, that, 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 that I had the big push in the church was the importance of Bible teaching. And all the meetings were Bible studies. And what, what I was doing, I was training everyone so that they could be a Bible teacher. Had that been the case, I would not actually be part of a biblically functioning church. I would actually be part of a Bible school or a seminary or something. Can you see? Now, teaching is valid evangelism is valid but if you lose the balance and pragmatism will always lose the balance if you lose the balance you end up with a, a, a basically a clone of your own ministry and that is not what scripture teaches we know that you can have a family that is a genuine family but because it's not going by what the bible teaches about family life it's a dysfunctional family now, the thing is, with churches that aren't biblical, that don't go by what the Bible teaches, and this is by and large what we would say of, you know, more institutional churches in general, we're not saying they're not churches. We're not saying they're not families of God. We're saying they're dysfunctional families. They're dysfunctional churches. And whenever you get this pragmatism that merely clones whatever ministry formed that church into being, then what you've got there is a dysfunctional church. And, you know, sort of, it will always go wrong. Imagine, with, with the evangelistic pragmatists, imagine a family, mum, dad, and the kids, and everything in that family surrounds one objective, to have more kids. Wouldn't that be a ridiculous family? You know, so you have a child, and then that you train that child up so its contribution is ready to receive more children that mum and dad are going to have. Now then, I'm not saying don't have lots of kids. I'm not saying don't evangelize and bring people to the Lord. Of course I'm not. But in a family that only existed to have more kids, those kids would not be being raised in the proper way that children should be. And that's what pragmatism does. All right, It will simply raise up a family, a church family, where everyone fundamentally is existing and under pressure to make sure that more and more people become Christians and that more and more churches um, you know, sort of, uh, come into being. And you, you will screw that family up. You will screw those people up. Because one of the things you're saying is that everyone is an evangelist. And that's nonsense. Because Paul goes out of his way to say everyone is not evangelists. And if you try and force people into a mould that the Lord biblically is not forcing them into, you will damage them. And rather than, than believers growing up into maturity in the Lord, and their personal evangelism will come out of that. Rather than having balanced, mature believers, you get people with a single mindset, kind of merely the extension of whatever ministry brought it into being. And of course, with, with churches like that, even house churches... It's, it really is, it's, it's, it's numbers all the way. It is, sadly, the numbers game. 
And you know, I mean, I, and I say, the, these are wonderful brothers. We're not, you know, we're not talking anything about people's sincerity before the Lord. We're talking about people who aren't properly grounded in Scripture. And, you know, all I can say is that I can, I can define in one way my Christian life as the continuous realization of where I'm not properly grounded in Scripture. I'm always realizing where I'm wrong. I mean, that's part of what Scripture is there for. Not only that, but Scripture is there to show us where we're wrong. So if we're saying, hey, there are things going on you know, where people aren't biblically grounded, we're saying that from the point of view of realizing we're all the time growing in our understanding, of course. But we're just looking at the effects that this pragmatism has. And, and I mean, you know, sort of like in the books that these guys write. I mean, you know, I've read things like, you know, that if, if, if a church hasn't replicated within three months, it probably never will. Now, what lies behind that thinking is a total travesty of everything Scripture teaches. The idea that, that if a church hasn't planted another church within three months, there's something wrong with it. And you read all these guys, their graphs and stuff like that, exponential church growth, and, you know, like one church plants another one, then both of those plant another one three months later, then those four each plant another one. Well, of course, eventually you end up with an incredible, you know, amount of churches. But let's just bring a little bit of reality in here. If you start reading the New Testament from the day of Pentecost onwards, and I still argue we haven't bettered that yet. But even if you start reading in the Acts of the Apostles, if the church then, if the infant apostolic church had replicated in the way that these guys say that churches today should be, well then the math works out that by around 50 AD there would not have been a single unbeliever in the entire world. I mean, you can, you can talk about exponential growth all you like. It's a bit like saying, hey, well, if you take $1 and you double it tomorrow in your job, and then you take those $2 and you double it, and then and you see these how-to become a millionaire before breakfast books. Before you know it, you're rolling in money, okay? But the problem is, well, yeah, if every time you could, if you could double a, a dollar every day of your life, you would be. But how do you do it? And the point is that when we look in the New Testament, they didn't do it anyway. And there's something else. With the people who push this, I mean, you know, there are visions going around at the moment. Well, is it a million house churches in America? Is it, is it by next Thursday, Dan, or Friday? I can't, you know. And, but the point is, the people who are coming out with all this, they're not actually planting churches any quicker than the rest of us anyway. So you, could, you can end up with, you, you know, sort of like obsessed with a, a numbers thing. And you don't even realize that you're not even able to do what you're saying other people should be doing. And, and of course, it reminds me of, didn't Jesus say to Pharisees about something that you, you, you load on other people, things that you couldn't bear yourself? See, this is always the danger of departing from scriptural practice and scriptural thinking. But most importantly... Okay, and let's ask this question. With this whole kind of rapid church planting thing, this, this pragmatism, where do we find that emphasis in Scripture? Where do we... We have letter after letter after letter written by apostles to churches 
or believers in churches over various areas. Where do we find the apostles saying, hey, what's, you know, what's your plan for next year? What's your vision? How many, how many churches are you strategizing for next year? Now, here's the point. Not only do we not see very much of that when apostles write to churches, you don't see any of it at all. It's just not there. And so pragmatism leads to thinking and actions and practice born of the need that is nowhere found in Scripture. And and so, you know, we've got to understand that. And I'll throw something else out as well. When you read through the life of Paul, where are the hundreds of churches he planted? Where are the hundreds of churches that Peter planted? When you read, you know, all this pragmatic stuff about multiplying house churches and stuff like that, I'll tell you, by that teaching, the apostles weren't very good anyway. And Jesus was absolutely hopeless. Because it just doesn't take into account the Lord's strategy, which is oftentimes very, very different um, from ours. And uh, a while ago, I had one of, you know, the, the, these guys email me. We're having a little bit of, oh, hey, why did you say that? And, oh, where's that in Scripture? And, uh, you know, and sort of like, uh, you know, the reply emailed ended with, you know, has your church replicated yet? And I just wrote back and I said, you know, hey, when you wrote that, I mean, okay, you're, you're quite free to say that. But I said, when you wrote that, you wrote something to me that is unheard of in Scripture. There is no scriptural precedent for challenging a church as to whether or not it's replicated. And yet this is, seems to be the only thing that matters to these guys. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying don't evangelize. Of course I'm not saying don't evangelize. I'm just saying that we've got to stick to scripture. And this rapid church planting, as far as scripture is concerned, is fundamentally um, nonsense. Now, if you want to speak in terms of when many, many people are getting converted, all right, now if you want to call that revival, that's fine. But here's what we've got to understand. You can't make that happen. And I want to tell you something else. If it did happen, you wouldn't be able to stop it. I have actually known a period in my Christian life, and it was many years ago, and it lasted for around three or four months, I couldn't stop people becoming Christians. I couldn't stop them. People were coming to my house who didn't know why they came, and they were becoming believers. And then it stopped. I wasn't trying to do it, and it happened. I couldn't have stopped it if I tried. And we need to understand it. That is purely the Lord's prerogative. Ours is to be faithful, and that includes in evangelism as well. Now, let me, let me tell you, one of the big giveaways, whenever you get people who are teaching pragmatic house church rather than biblical house church, the big giveaway, and I see this in them virtually every time, you will always find a big disclaimer that they're not saying that this is the only way to do church. You see, and they specifically will put that disclaimer in. Oh, no, we're not saying that house church is the only way to do church. In the Bible it is. Oh, but they're not saying that. Well, firstly, they need the support of the establishment. 
which I think is cheating a bit anyway. See? But, but again, it, it, it's all one way or the other going against what Scripture teaches. And what they talk about is in terms of the best model. And they're saying that, you know, well, now we've got Generation X and all this kind of thing. We need a new model of doing church. Recently in London, there was a conference put on, and it was people who were, you know, kind of, they were trying to thrash out what's, what's the best kind of church model for the 21st century in Western world, you see. Now, I was invited to attend, but I was here in America, so I couldn't. But I was kind of bad, glad that I didn't, because my contribution would have been, uh, try what the Bible says. But you see, that's the one thing you're not allowed to say. Because then you upset other people who don't believe that there's only one way to do it. Oh, yeah, and it's just, it's just crazy. And so the point is that as soon as you get this, it's not grounded. The reason for it is not what the Bible teaches. And okay, yeah, they'd say it's evangelism, but what's, they're creating churches in ways other than what Scripture teaches. And of course, and this is why you find so much practice in those setups, even though they're house churches, that finds absolutely no, you know, given no airtime in Scripture at all. I mean, these movements, they often, you know, they, you know, sort of depend on needing to make women elders and having women Bible teachers. Or often they say, well, if you're going to have churches replicate every three months, well, obviously you've got to make new converts elders. Now, never mind that the Bible specifically says you mustn't do that. They need to do it, because if they're not doing it, the production line isn't turning enough in order to get the, uh, you know, the kind of, uh, you know, sort of uh, influence and, and results that they're after. And I was reading, you know, uh, you know, sort of like, I would say perhaps the most influential or one of the most influential, you know, sort of like, you know, books on house church probably in the world today. And, you know, and it was saying about, you know, when it comes to leadership, they, you need local elders, right? Okay, fine. I, I agree with that. And you need like the Ephesians for itinerant ministries working with those elders and, and translocal way. Yeah, that sounds pretty pretty okay. But I'm reading it and I think, oh, I'll bet I know what's coming next because I could just smell hierarchy in this. And then, do you know what the third ministry is that you need? In order to complete the picture, you need the ministry of men who the writer terms apostolic fathers. And these apostolic fathers the people, they've got a vision and a burden for a whole geographical area, for a whole city. And of course, the elders have to work in conjunction with the elders, and the elders have to work in, con sorry, the elders have to work in conjunction with the translocal ministries, and it's all working in conjunction with the vision of an apostolic father. And you think, hang on a sec, we've got a tier of leadership here that is nowhere found in Scripture. Well, you're back to the early church fathers. That's what they did. At the end of the day, the early church fathers were pragmatists. And it's what went wrong. And pragmatism in house churches will go wrong in exactly the same way. Hey, got to move on. Going to get gonged if I'm not careful. Let's have a look at mysticism. Okay. Now, this is, this is the other side of the coin. Um, you can always, if I think I'm running out of time, I start to speak a little bit faster because I do need to get through all my... Now, mysticism is the other side of the coin, and this is, this is doing house church as opposed to biblical church, not because, hey, this is what I see in Scripture, so I'm going to do it. This is because um, God told me to. He did. He told me. Well, 
You see, the problem is if God's told you to do something, who am I to argue with it? You know, I mean, I, I used to be a young Christian. Honestly, I used to be a young Christian. And I learned not to get to too many wrestling matches with the Lord. So if the Lord has told you something, oh, I'm going to accept it. But of course I'm not. I'm talking nonsense. When someone comes along and says, God told me, as opposed to this is what Scripture teaches, they're expecting you to take that statement purely on their own authority. And you see, the trouble with God speaking to you, and I have no problem with the Lord, I have no problem with revelational guidance at all. God talks to me too. I speak in tongues. I do. But does that make me spiritual? No, it doesn't. It makes me someone very prone to deception. Not because I speak in tongues, but we're deceived so easily. So the point is, I'm not saying that God doesn't speak with you, but how can anything be tested as to whether it's the Lord speaking to you, an evil spirit speaking to you, or just your own personal silliness? Because I have quite a lot of that. Blender's on the fourth volume of uh, My Husband's Silly Ways, hoping to be a bestseller. So the only, you know, oh God, the Spirit led me to do house church. Now the problem is that if pragmatism turns you into an evangelist and church planter, whether you are or not, mysticism makes you a clone of whoever it is that you're buying into, that God has told them. Do you see the problem? Church planter, the apostle, or whatever. So pragmatism will have you trying to do a ministry God hasn't necessarily given to you. Whereas this mysticism, someone comes along and says, I have the word of the Lord. Not, hey, look at this in scripture, but I have the word of the Lord. Oh, God speaks to them. And what happens is you are then locked up to the ministry of someone who thinks they have a hotline to God. Now, whether they're doing house church or not is neither here nor there. The problem is immediately you have ceased to be your own person before the Lord. Now, I'm not talking about individualism, but I'm talking about our individual responsibility to test everything by Scripture and to satisfy ourselves on the basis of Scripture. Do you remember what we read in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 6? I'll read it again. Now, brothers, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written, or do not go beyond Scripture. Now, listen to what he says immediately afterwards. Then you will not take pride in one man over against another. The moment you go beyond Scripture you are ending up in the bondage to whoever it is who is teaching this extra-biblical stuff and whose authority you are buying into even though you can't validate that revelation from the Word of God. You're locking yourself up into bondage and this is where all the personality cults that are wrecking the church today, including house churches, this is where all the personality cults from. A friend of mine here had a church planter say to him on one occasion, we don't need the Bible. We, we have Jesus. We have Jesus. We, we don't need the Bible. That, that sounds very spiritual. I'll tell you what the problem is. Ah, 
So if you have Jesus, but you don't need the Bible to test things by, well, how do you know what Jesus wants? I'll tell you the answer. Well, the church plant will tell you. The apostle will tell you. I'm, I'm not calling into question that there are apostles and church planters. I'm just talking about when all these things are done for reasons other than being grounded in Scripture, and it is just not safe. The fact that you have Scripture is your protection against me. Not this would ever apply to anything I said. No, that is your protection. The moment you lay that down, you are laying out the red carpet for deceiving spirits to come and screw your Christian life up. Also, when it comes to mysticism, yeah, you get the guru type people, I have the revelation of God. And you see, one of the problems when you get that sort of mysticism is that these people, you see, if someone came along and said, I have a revelation that you need to know, well, ultimately, they could tell you, and then you could say, oh, thanks very much, off you go, you've got the revelation. But the way these guys work is it's a revelation that they can never actually quite give to you in the sense of explaining it. You need their continued presence because no one's quite sure what this revelation experience is, but you just think he's got it. And so I need it, but how am I going to get it? You know? And he can't quite give it to you because he thinks that what you need is him. And that's what locks us up. Anything that locks you up to particular ministries. I'm not talking about people who have been a blessing to you and that, you know, you can benefit. I'm not talking about, I'm talking about anything that locks you up to somebody. Anything that takes your freedom to relate to any believer, any teacher you choose. Whenever you get this exclusive paranoia in house churches, pray for them. Pray for them. That's not biblical church. And of course, the other side with mysticism, I'll deal with this very quickly, you know, this kind of, you know, sort of God has told me thing, is that you've got to put what I call charismania in here. Now, I, you know, sort of like, you know, all, all the weird charismatic stuff, you know, all the, the, the Toronto blessing and, and all that kind of nonsense. And I say that as someone who is thrilled, again, I speak in tongues, not against gifts of the Spirit, and there's going to be a session on this. But one of the things that thrills me is that because we're, discovering what biblical church is it's safe to have the gifts of the spirit the reason the charismatic movement has gone so wrong is because they've taken the gifts of the spirit out of the setting scripture puts them in the gathering of a biblical church small in numbers without upfront leaders what are the two dangers with the charismatic gifts big numbers hysteria big leaders up the front manipulation domination now then, how has the Lord designed a biblical church to be? Small numbers without any leaders up front. Because in someone's house there ain't an up front to be up front. And you ain't saluting anyone anyway. You see, it's safe for us to get the gifts of the Spirit back. But the problem is, when people are just doing house church because this is how the Lord's leading me into the next phase of my Christian life, the problem is they'll bring that charismania in. And so you're going to get all these weird things in, in house churches. And, um, you know, it's going to be... And some of it, it can actually get quite demonic. So, danger area there, okay. However, the ultimate weakness of when people do biblical ch uh, do house church for pragmatic or, uh, you know, kind of um, mysticism is this. If someone is doing house church because they're convinced it's the best model, 
what are they going to do when they find a better model that works even better? They're going to drop house church like a hot cake. Well, of course they are. They're pragmatists. So they're not committed to it. It's just a phase they're going through. Some of them honestly think it is it. It's the final phase they'll go through. Well, let's read their books in 30 years and see. When another fad comes along, no, no fad, that's, that's unfair, that's unfair, I withdraw that. But when another thing comes along that everyone thinks this will work better, they'll drop house church. So they're not committed to it as a biblical principle, this is the whole point. Now then, the problem with the mystic, if you've been led into it by the Holy Spirit, rather than, hey, this is what... Now, my definition of being led by the Spirit is I was led by the Spirit into biblical house church, I read it in scripture. Of course. But I'm talking about people who are just, you know, it's like the Holy Spirit's got a ring through their nose. Where's the Holy Spirit going to lead me next? And this is one fad after another. Now, when these people come into house church, how long are they going to stick in with house church? Well, till the Holy Spirit leads them somewhere else to do something else. You see, so this is not commitment. This is not dedication on the basis that this is what God has revealed in Scripture. Okay. So, therefore, anyone doing house church because of pragmatism or mysticism will ultimately not stay the course and they will not be stable and consistent in regards to it. Whereas if you're doing it because it's your conviction, it's what scripture says, then you couldn't actually do anything else. No matter how bad it got. But it does. You know, I mean, why, why, why did Jesus say that you shouldn't divorce? Well, because he knew that marriage can be tough. That's the reason for it. It's commitment that Paul is. When you know there's no way out, that's the incentive to get over the humps. And that's exactly the same with doing house church. So let me just, just kind of you know, address you know, this question in a different way. I'm saying pragmatism and mysticism are bad reasons to do anything. And even if you're doing the right thing for the wrong reason, now that's sure better for doing the wrong thing for the wrong reason, or it's better than doing the wrong thing for the right reason. But the point is, if you're just doing the right thing for the wrong reason, then you're on a rug on a very slippery wooden floor, and Satan is standing there holding the ends. And he will pull that rug out from underneath you, ultimately, whenever he wants to. So I'm saying these are not good reasons for doing anything, including house church. I've also said the only good reason for doing anything is because of God's word. It's what Jesus wants. I mean, if we're saying Jesus is Lord, what are we saying? Him boss. That's what we're saying. Good a king, Steve says. Well, you always boss Jesus. If he's the Lord, then we're supposed to do what he wants. And he's shown us what he wants in scripture. And so therefore, let me tell you why I am not a pragmatist or a mystic. Let me, let me tell you why I cannot buy into those mindsets. Okay, so why aren't I a pragmatist? Why don't I? Well, if it works, it's great. Okay, well, the reason I can't be a pragmatist is because if what's motivating you is what works. Now, I mean, you know, if you're a toilet brush salesman, well, of course, pragmatism, you want to sell the best product. I'm talking about what God's word reveals about what he wants. So, oh, no. Okay, I'm dead. Gurneys, can, can we bring the resuscitator down to, to, to down? So, so what's that? I'm, I'm dead, but questions or it's all over? I've got questions. Okay, I'm dead, right. <laughs> yes! 
and, and the next band, if you could ask me why I'm not a mystic. I, <laughs> oh, it's so English to cheat, isn't it? Um, yeah, I'm not a pragmatist because if the definition is I'm going by what works, I don't necessarily think that what they say works is necessarily God's definition of what he thinks works best. Can you see the point? So, so the thing is, uh, I mean, Mormonism works, doesn't it? Look how many Mormons there are. Occultism works. Why would I have done it if it didn't work? And so the point is, people are going to say, well, this works, and that's the reason to do it. You're presupposing that that thing that's working is also in accordance with God's will. And you can only find that out by going back to Scripture. Okay. So the point is, um, let's, let's say, all right, that, that, that this rapid church, house church planting works. Now, I, I think the, the jury is out on that for a few years yet, okay? I think it's a, you know, a vision of a million churches is fine. Let's get a few planted and then see how we're doing in 30 years, okay? But, but if you've, you've got someone saying, okay, but this rapid church planting works, Beresford, well, I say, so what? If all you're doing is multiplying unbiblical house churches unbiblically and cloning people into something they shouldn't be, well, I'm not sure that that's what the Lord wants for them. And if you're going to say, oh, yeah, but people get converted. Well, I've got news for you. People get converted through biblical house churches as well, actually. There's not a corner on that market, for heaven's sake. But I mean, you know, but the point is, even if you say, but at least people are getting saved, I say, that's wonderful. So why not get them saved biblically and put them into biblical churches? You see, And the trouble is, the reason they won't do that is because they know that if they go by the way the apostles did things, it won't work anymore. And that's the problem. That's why I can't be um, a pragmatist, okay? Now, Dan, in answer to your question about why I'm not a miskit... <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. What's happening in China is precisely what I was saying. If God is doing that, you won't stop it. The big mistake is what's happening in China, from all I hear about it, is that there you have just an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, much as Pentecost started off. It's not the norm. We, you know, we need to understand that. Sometimes God sovereignly pours his spirit out and you get what you might call a revival. It's happened in England at various points in our history. But to say that that is the normal level at which we're supposed to experience conversions is silly. And so the mistake is, yeah, let's pray for it. Be, I've been praying for revival for over 25 years. That, that, and if that happens, wow, absolutely wonderful. It's happening in China and some other places. But here's the big mistake. People go and look at the, 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 the pragmatists. They go to China or parts of India and stuff like that. They see it happening, and then they come back and say, hey, we can make it happen here. If we do this, 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 and this, then that, that, that will happen just like in China. Now, that's the error. That's the error. Now, I'll tell you, I've spoken with people who have gone into situations like that. They've smiled at someone from the cafe window, and they become a Christian. Everywhere they go, people get converted, and that's wonderful. Then they come back to America or in England. They can't do it anymore. Because it weren't them doing it. It was the Lord doing it. And this is where it goes wrong. Our call is to be faithful to the Lord. To live according to scripture. Now if we're doing that, if, please God, revival comes, we'll handle it in the Lord's grace. Don't you worry about that. But what I'm talking about is the idea if we do this, this, this and this, and then you're just living 
to try and make something happen that might not be God's will anyway. Because this, this is the sovereign working of God. And the normal church life, if you read through scripture, the further away you get from Pentecost, you're not seeing those incredible outpourings all the time. They come and go in history, and it's wonderful when they do. But tell me, if that is true, if that was true throughout the New Testament period, the letters that Paul and the apostles wrote to churches become a nonsense. I mean, don't you think he'd have told them how to handle all these hundreds of people getting converted all the time? Not a word. And in fact, most of the epistles, when you read them to the churches, they're written to stable groupings of people without really much expectation there's going to be vast personnel differences. Let's pray for revival, yes, but let's not kid ourselves that we can make it happen. The pragmatists believe we can. And that's where you see it's the, you know, the, 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 the other side of the coin of the mystics. Because in charismanianism, charismania, however you say it, like they think if you do this, that, and that, and that, you can get healed. You can make it happen. You can't. I believe in healing. But the way some people go about it is just crazy. And unbiblical. Yes. Well, if, if, if you're asking, that's very loaded. If you ask me, are you saying, am I saying Charles Finney was a false, false believer? Absolutely not. I mean, he was a wonderful man of God. But there's no question he introduced methods of evangelism which are in complete variance with what Scripture teaches, but which have caught on in the West. I mean, you know, I mean, the simple idea of, 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 of mass evangelism at specific rallies with an appeal for people to come forward. You won't find anything like that in Scripture. You might find in Scripture people running forward, asking the evangelist how they can be saved before he's even finished. But that, by definition, is spontaneous. So the point is, you know, he was a wonderful brother, but no, he introduced practices that are a million miles from anything we see in Scripture. But the Lord greatly used him. Bless him. You know, I mean, we're not... We're not calling anyone's faithfulness to the Lord into question. In the same way that in the past men have said, well, look, hey, we've got to look at this transubstantiation. We've got to look at this purgatory thing. In the same way, we look back and people who challenged wrong church practice in the past, we call them heroes. Then someone comes along and challenges a church practice that you believe, and he's a troublemaker. And that's exactly what Jesus said. The only question is, is what Finney did biblical? Now then, he evangelized. Is that biblical? Yes. But the way he evangelized, is that biblical? No. And kind of, he left us a sad legacy. Arguably, put your hand up and believe in Jesus, now you're saved. Would not have happened if it hadn't been for Finney. Now it's endemic in the West. Now it's killing the church. But he was a good man. He was Finney. Yes, I'm all for Finney. None of this is challenging anyone's faithfulness or sincerity. Uh, over there? Uh, and, and, and after this, someone who's going to ask me why I'm not mystic. Be 
we see precisely when Paul writes to the Corinthians that the manner in which he was teaching them to do church could only possibly make sense if it's a small number of people. And whenever a particular church is located, it is always, without exception, in someone's house. Now, we know that in the early days, the believers would meet around the temple. But we've got to realize that this wasn't them going down there and holding services. When we think of the early church having services, we're reading our own wrong practice back into Scripture. Okay, The, the early church, yeah, they would get everyone together for teaching. You know, I mean, sort of teaching could be done with, with multiple churches coming together. If an apostle was coming through, they could all get together or something like that. But a lot of their hanging out at Solomon's porch in the temple was actually their social gathering point, and also they used it for evangelism. But whenever we ask, what does a church do? Individual churches are only ever located in houses, and by definition, what they're supposed to do can only happen amongst a small number of people. So we're not saying that there can't be times when multiple churches come together. We see that in Scripture. But interestingly, whenever we do see multiple churches coming together, it's always for kind of teaching and working out what we're going to do about this problem. You never see multiple churches coming together in Scripture for what we might call worship services. They're from the front. It just isn't there in Scripture. And, you know, and the idea that the push behind a church gathering was worship anyway is not there in Scripture. It was part of the package, but it wasn't the whole thing. So, so this idea we have that the Jerusalem church were getting together for these big celebration and these big charismatic knees ups and all the big guys at the front, that, that's just not there in Scripture at all. Dan. You said that the church in Corinth had to take place in a house because you know, the stuff going on. Well, that's right, yeah. But also, why do you need elders and deacons in an old house church? Because the mm. church is so small, what do you need mm. deacons to take care of? Why do you need deacons to take care of such seven families? Yeah. It's interesting. I rather think that in Acts 6, when you got the, you know, those men appointed to help feed the widows, I, I rather think that was the genesis of deacons. I'm not so convinced that deacons exist in quite the official way that we think it does. It just means servants. But and, and, and in the Ephesian epistle, when deacons are mentioned, it's interesting, that was rather a circular epistle. It was a large area rather than necessarily in one particular church. And what's interesting is that I think deacons... Uh, that sort of ministry would come about when there were lots of churches which then started to face corporate needs that any one church couldn't necessarily meet. And so therefore, probably, deacons would be recognized to handle problems that related to the work of multiple churches together. And I think that whereas it's quite possible, even for a swing, I mean, we're, we're 25 strong at the moment, you know, we've been bigger than that quite happily. Yeah, you could have an individual church that may recognize two or three lead, you know, elders, and that might be fine. But also, you could well have the situation where churches have multiplied, but maybe there's a lack of mature brothers, lots of new converts. So therefore, you may have recognized elders who are kind of helping all the churches together. Either they're sharing them out around the churches, you know, sharing themselves out. But what you've got to understand, they are not hierarchical. They are not, each church governs itself consensually. So even if you do have ministries coming in from the outside, they're not coming in to tell you what to do. They're coming in to help, to advise. Whether you take their advice is purely up to you. So yeah, probably you can share elders out until such time as individual churches have their own. 
So where certainly church, biblical churches will be able to move as one in an area, but each church remains individual and distinct. Yes. Brandon Guy. Right, okay. In regards to the first question, I mean, you know, if, if, if you, for instance, you know, and these are all things that I've come across in house churches, the practice of if someone wants to become part of a church, all right, they're, they're kind of converted, they want to become part of a church, they're discipled for a while, um, and then there's a thing that they go through where the, the church accepts them into, you know, into it, they make a covenant between each other, the person who's new into the church kneels down, the elders lay hands on him as a sign of his submission to the church. Now, that's not a biblical practice. But not only do you not find it, um, you know, kind of in Scripture, but if you do something like that, even if they're doing it and they're not, you know, they're not bad guys, you can see how that can turn into it. So that's an unbiblical practice. So it's born of pragmatism. It's, it's not in Scripture, um, you know, or, or the idea... Um, you know, I mean, I visited some people I heard of in England who are part of a, you know, a sort of a, a house church network that is mainly in other countries. There's, there's hardly any of it in England. And, uh, you know, their practice is to only meet and function together as a church when their church planter, who comes from America, is present with them. The rest of the time, they just hang out together socially. But they won't do Bible study or anything like that because without the church planter, they can't be trusted. That's not... A, I mean, can you imagine Paul writing to a church and saying that? So, so all these are examples of practices. Now, also, I mean, sometimes I'll ask these guys or write to them, and I'll say, hey, can you give me a biblical foundation for what you're teaching there? Now, normally, I don't get a reply. Now, I consider that serious. If, if, you, if you ask someone, can you ground what you're teaching there in Scripture, and they don't want to reply, I'd say, you're on, usually, I don't get a reply. But normally, even if I do get a reply, I just get pragmatic reasons for why it works. People can't ground these things in Scripture. They don't even try. They're not there in Scripture. You might as well try and prove infant baptism from Scripture. And so, therefore, I think that that's always the giveaway. And, and, and for me, one test is, in, inside any practice or teaching, should I accept this as being of the Lord? Well, here's one test. Did the apostles teach the early churches to observe it? And if he did, it'll be there. It'll be there. So any practices or teaching that are extra-biblical, yet are being put forward as necessary, be very, very careful. Now, the, the sec just repeat the second half of your question. Oh, right, yeah. Well, I mean, certainly the apostles would often work as teams. But the idea that churches were only planted by apostles working in multiple teams is, 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 I think, going way beyond what we see in Scripture. It was a normal practice, and that's fine, apostolic teams. Jesus sent them out two by two. Um, but a lot of what we're doing you know, at the moment, you know, today anyway, a lot of what we're doing is actually helping Christians to become biblical churches. 
the apostles were actually working from scratch and seeing people converted. Now, that's, that's wonderful, that's better. But nevertheless, we still need to feed the Lord's sheep. And, and, and there are the Lord's people dying in churches that aren't living according to his teaching. So, you know, I'd, I'd say that if you've got a sing, you know, someone who's planting churches and they're working on their own, I wouldn't see any big deal. As long as, whether it's an individual or whether it's a team, as long as no one is being locked up to them. That's the important issue. As long as your loyalty to them is only in the sense of, hey, they've become a friend and, you know, sort of like they're someone I respect. But the moment that you get into any kind of almost you've got a spiritual contract to follow this person, you're in big trouble. <laughs> big trouble. So be wary of people. Whatever their practice, be wary of anyone who is locking you up to them. That's what is so, so dangerous. Hello. Yes, you, sir. Yes. Church, the only scripture they had was the Old Testament. Yep. And, uh, and the teaching of the apostles. Yeah, that's right. Mm. That's right. So they have to take their word for it, in a sense, or they have to reflect by scriptures, but the Bereans referred to scripture to what they had said. That's right, yeah. So what Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes, yes, sir. Since we're on the topic of death there, I mean, you're saying great things. What do you think about graven images? Graven images? I'd probably need you to define what you mean. I mean it's just so, so you know, some people say TV's a graven image. It's so hard to hear you going up there and we're sitting there looking at this big white cross that you're saying. Oh, yeah, but this isn't anything to do with us. Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah, no, that's nothing. Although, yeah, I mean, well, it's little better. You know, sort of like, this is just a hall that we're hiring. It just happens to be a Christian-based university. We didn't put this there. Um, if there'd have been a pagan image on there, so what? Oh, okay. I'm gonged. For more information, contact the Chigwell Christian Fellowship on our website at www.house-church.org.